This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Onyx Hunt provides detailed, color-coded maps with public and private land ownership information. Onyx turns your phone into a fully functional GPS, even when cell phone service is not available, and gain the confidence to hunt new areas and states. Game wardens are using Onyx to make sure you are hunting in the right spot. Shouldn't you be using Onyx first? Start your free 7-day trial by visiting Google Play and the App Store. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and I use Onyx. Wish you could fish more, anywhere, anytime. Rod Geeks, a St. Croix Rod's partner, has developed a 42-inch one-piece travel rod designed and built with the same technology found in St. Croix Rods. This travel rod is offered as a kit that comes with the RG42 rod, spinning reel, fishing line, pliers, and tackle tray. All in a case with space for your wallet, phone, and fishing license. Just grab and go. Perfect to keep in your pickup, car, or RV. This shorty performs much like a longer rod, but is compact enough for easy storage and for on-the-go use. Make this the summer you fish more. RodGeeks.com Guidefitter is the industry network for professional outdoor guides and outfitters. The trusted destination for consumers seeking and sharing guided hunting and fishing experiences of a lifetime and the enterprise influencer marketing platform for outdoor brands. Guidefitter and its members represent the pulse of the guided hunting and fishing industry. Guidefitter's outdoor partners provide discounts to select types of outdoor professionals, including game wardens, members of the military, guides, outfitters, and other outdoor professionals. Over 145 brand partners and counting. Gear across many categories, including packs, footwear, clothing, flashlights, knives, optics, even firearms and ammo. For more information, go to guidefitter.com slash wardenswatch. That's wardenswatch, all one word. I'm game warden Wayne Saunders, and I'm a member of Guidefitter. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief. Please join me, game warden Wayne Saunders and other game wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. 
Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Welcome to episode 23. And I'm going to say, this is a nostalgic episode. It's the last one in 2019. So we're going to be moving on to 2020 with episode 24. But episode 23 is going to be retired Colonel Eddie Henderson from the Georgia DNR. Eddie is just a dynamic individual. When he became colonel, he didn't forget about the the baby wardens, and you're going to hear about the baby wardens, but he he was a a warden's warden and a warden's leader, and just didn't stop in Georgia, but but went nationwide with his leadership. And I remember the first time I was sitting in a meeting and I heard Eddie's opinion on something. Somebody asked Eddie's opinion. I had never met Eddie before, and I listened to his response, and I was like, that was very thoughtful. This guy is on it. And he understands how things are happening and how things operate, what they're going on. And it was very insightful. And that's the moment I said, geez, what a great leader. What a great leader Georgia has. And it's just uh, that through this podcast, that's all I can think is just what a great guy to be leading the charge. And, and you guys have heard from some dynamic individuals that are leading today's wildlife law enforcement throughout our nation that's something that I'm connecting you with. So you, you get a feel for how that we're going about enforcing the laws and doing our jobs, protecting your wildlife, my wildlife, and, and how effective we're being. And, and the challenges ahead. And we do have some challenges ahead, whether it's numbers, whether it's pay rates, things like that. Also, Eddie gets into some of the stories of being a young game warden, which I just find awesome. Uh, the counter-surveillance surveillance and you'll hear that story. That's that's one of my favorites. The other thing about Eddie is, is is his family, and his wife, Candy, is the administrator for International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, and she's just an awesome administrator, a pleasure to deal with, committed as well. And as, as a team, I can see that they work well together. Candy's just an outstanding individual, and th- those guys are what a, what a couple. I always enjoy hanging out with them, talking with them. Their, their passion for for wildlife just comes through. Last episode of 2019, and what a great 2019 we've had. We started in March with Warden's Watch. We have come a long ways in a short time. Still need to go places. And if you can like my Facebook page, if you can follow me on Instagram, if you can subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to my podcast. That's that's how we, we make podcasts. That's how I'm learning. And it's been a learning curve this year for me. I've been drinking through a fire hose is my favorite saying right now. And it's so true from the audio from where I started in March to where I am now just is, is, is blows my mind. And you're hearing some of the earlier podcasts that are coming through and the changes. But anyways, this podcast, I want to say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, because it is December. It is the last one prior to those holidays. But in 2020, we're going to kick off the new year with celebrating New York Department of Environmental Conservation. The game wardens there, their 140th year. 140 years 
of environmental protection in New York State. So you're going to hear that the first podcast, and I'm excited to share that. I'm excited for them. And every time when when we hit those landmarks, we hit those benchmarks, we should be excited because those that paved the way before us to go back a hundred years and bring them forward, they would they would blow their minds what we're doing now and what we're doing it with and how far we've come. And it's just a, it's going to be a cool thing. So so travel with me through New York's history, the game wardens there, very very cool guys, very cool stories. Uh, enjoy their history and help celebrate their history with them. So that's going to be our first kickoff podcast in 2020. So right now I want to sit you back and relax and enjoy our Georgia hospitality from Eddie Henderson, former colonel of Georgia DNR. Thanks for listening. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Yeah. I'm doing okay. You know, you're only my second colonel interview, so I will say, you know, the colonel thing. I always like starting at the top. There's a lot of experience here and a lot of things that I want to talk about and a lot of things I think you can bring out that's pretty neat and uh george's is definitely different for me sure you know everybody's going to know by your accent right away because that's something you can't hide right well i, I don't have an accent but everybody <laughs> tells me i do <laughs> everybody from new england that's right yes no doubt 36 years that 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 that's probably the longest tenure that i've heard recently right well i you know i had a great career uh in georgia and uh just love what i was doing from the time I was in high school, that was my goal in life, was to ultimately be a game warden in Georgia. My dad, growing up, worked with Department of Natural Resources, and he worked on a public fishing area and a fish hatchery. And during that period of time, the game wardens would come patrolling through, checking for fishing licenses, making sure everybody was in compliance. And, you know, I was out cutting grass, sweating, working hard physically. And I said to myself, you know, when I grow up, that's the job I want to do. That looked like a pretty good job it, when yes, you were working looked, your butt off. Looked like a really good job. And, and every time I head to the south, all I do is sweat. So I, I can I can picture that scene and hear those guys driving around in the truck. And, you know, at least, at least it was me. I'd have my air conditioning cranking, too. Absolutely. But, so you started, and did you start where you wanted in the county you lived in? Or No, you know, in our state at that particular point in time, that you were not allowed to work your home county or a county that adjoined your home county because of the issues that you may have dealing with people you know if you're arresting them. So I actually started in Wilcox County, which was probably about 140 miles from my home county. And whereabouts and in Georgia is that? It's kind of the south middle part of the state, more toward the southern end. And it actually was a really, really good game boarding type county. When I first started, there were 7,600 people in that county. Had a lot of river swamp, a lot of hunting activity, really, really good place to start. Of course, I had no law enforcement experience whatsoever. Started September 1 of 1982. And my first day at uh, my new sergeant picked me up in Abbeville, Georgia. That was the county seat. We went to our office in Cordill, Georgia. And when we got there, you know, basically I was issued a uniform, a badge, a gun, a mag light, a truck. And the truck that I had at that point in time had a little teardrop type rotating blue light on it that you'd have to tap on the top to make it work oh boy but with no experience i was provided a gun a badge and from that day on i was a game warden and of course you know i had a lot of field training i had to go through and all that but you think about things how they have evolved so nowadays from today yes from you, know, you gotta like now you cannot do that you've got to go through your post basic mandate training or any of that before you can be 
you know, sworn in, given a badge or a gun, which is a good thing. Yes. But if you think back, you know, I was 22 years of age when I started and very green, wet behind the ears. So they didn't really have any formal training. It was just your FTO training? Yes, I did have to go through a basic academy. It was nine weeks, but I started September and that was in January of the next year. So I got so you to work through a hunting season. I worked through a hunting season, which was really great experience because you think about it, you get to go through all that. Then you go to the academy. You knew a lot about what they were talking about when it come to enforcing the law and all that. Right. Did you generally work with somebody during that time frame? During that period of time, you know, I had a work schedule with folks that I was to work with, but in between, you know, if coming and going if we run across if i ran across an infraction i could address it mm-hmm. but yes we did work with someone had a work schedule it's just a different officers in the work unit i was in you know i would have one of those that i'd meet with every day and of course during that period of time they would work you from can to can't mm-hmm. there was no flsa requirements no nope. and uh, with that work schedule a lot of times one would drop me off during hunting season like 2 a.m another one would be meeting me at 6 a.m and we're rolling back out going again so that was part of the test you know that, to see if absolutely. you had the fortitude to hang in there with what it took yeah when i when i was a trainee i had a case we had a night in case we were done at like 6 a.m and i was supposed to meet my next fto at eight and i called him and said hey sarge we've been out all night you know so i'm you know i'm not gonna i don't think i'm gonna make it there for eight he's like okay nine o'clock's just fine right so, exactly and then we worked till about one o'clock in that morning i was falling asleep in the truck and he kept asking me if i was tired and i kept nope nope i'm fine exactly <laughs> that was part of your fto trying to make sure that you could hang in there that's exactly right you, you, you keep pushing 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 and sometimes i wonder if we pushed a little too hard it and, was <laughs> it was and, and looking back on it you know i, I try not to, i always tell my told my guys don't burn the candle at both ends some of them still do to this day but at least i, I put that out there <laughs> well and one of the things too you know if you think about it what a game warden does for a living is more than a career it's a lifestyle mm. you know you think about the fact that most any officer complaints come into their home direct a lot of them give out their home number nowadays their sale numbers Mm -hmm. and that never stops if you're off duty on duty if you're off duty and you're trying to grab a bite to eat somebody's gonna some of the best best cases coming on your days off with people calling you and saying hey this just happened or something and i jumped on it exactly that that was the fun of being a game warden right exactly do they now can you be assigned to your home county or hometown Yes. yes so that's changed yeah, and you think about recruitment, retention issues nowadays that you have as an agency. Mm-hmm. That helps if you can keep somebody close to their home. You look Especially at their when they're established. Yes, they're established. Their spouse maybe have a really good job somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to kind of change with the times and do, with the cost nowadays of relocating, selling, buying a house, et cetera. You know, we're doing – in Georgia, we're doing what we could to keep our folks as close as possible. Didn't always happen because there'd always have to be an opening in that area. And, and that makes good sense. And, and you know, we, we talk about retention, and I think every agency is going through that, um, whether it's pay or whether it's, you know, uh, you know, they all, the grass is always greener on the other side until you get there. Sure. So, you know, and I think if you wanted to be a game warden, it really doesn't matter what it costs, but it sure is nice to get paid what everybody else is. So you're not always looking on the other side of the fence and you worked really hard to, to make your grass greener. Didn't you? We did. We were very fortunate in our state, had the stars to line up a lot. My last seven and a half years working, I had the opportunity to be Colonel for our division there. And uh, as far as pay goes, we had a really good governor in place. And over that period of time, we were able to, move the needle significantly for our pay you know our starting pay for a 
baby game warden had been 32,500 for many, many, many years. But over a three-year period of time, we were able to move it And we're just up. talking seven and a half years ago that that was the rate? Yes, that's exactly. Probably wow. more like five years ago, it was still 32,500 starting salary. And, you know, in today's society, you cannot survive making no. that kind of money. No, no. I've, I'm, sh- I'm, like, shocked when you, when you just – Threw out that number, and I'm like, that, that's pretty recent. So we were able to move that up to 41,236, which was a huge, huge change, which Absolutely. helped with our recruitment nice, uh, and, and retention, too. Did, did that bring you up to the level of most of the agencies in yes, the area? Yes. Uh, you know, metro Atlanta area was higher, but it was a lot higher than a lot of the places. That and you got to live in the city and work in the city. Yeah, yes. You, you can have that. That's right. <laughs> I like the woods. So exactly, and, and a lot of people that want to be a game warden want to be a game warden. But I think that's that's a pretty awesome achievement when you're colonel to to see that problem and and to tackle it because that's that's a huge tackle. I, I just think of the the vastness of trying to do that in my state. It would take a huge undertaking, right? And it, this had been bubbling up for several years, as you can imagine, not just with us, with with our Georgia Bureau of Investigation, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get parity, pay parity with our highway patrol there. So it was a joint effort, and with anything like that, you have to kind of do a grassroots effort, mm-hmm. get, let everybody be educated on what the issue is, and work forward with that. So everything from our little slick sleeve baby game wardens all the way up, that was kind of one of those things we did an awareness of. You can't twist anybody's arm, but you can let them know and, and ask because the General Assembly is the ones that have to make those decisions as well as the governor's office has to support it. And fortunately, we had a really good reputation in our state. We had worked really hard for that through our conservation law enforcement and also just keeping folks aware of what a game warden does, what services they provide to the state. So, you know, that is always amazing that many people do not know the breadth of what a game warden does in this nation. Mm. I would totally agree, and that's part of what this podcast does, I hope, is, is bring it to light. You know, we have the, the TV shows, Northwoods Law, you know, Lone Star Law, and that. They show a aspect of it, but I, I don't think they show the whole thing. Sure. You know, it's the most versatile peace officer, like in Georgia, that there is in the state. They mm. can do anything. Right. And you guys do. Exactly. You know, I, I know we, we had this pre-interview, and one of the things that you had was a, an intoxicated boater once, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. You know, you got a lot of different things that you run across and where I was at was a rural area and we had the Oak Muggy river, which was one of the waterways that we patrolled there. And as a field sergeant, you know, I would drop our folks in the boat and I would pull the boat trailer up going from landing to landing and I would meet them. You know, it's a lot easier patrolling up river with the boat, pull up to your boats versus having to circle by them and come back. Mm-hmm. So I would always kind of meet them at the next landing. I'd check, uh, boaters when they would come out and there was one there, and this was actually in the county I was assigned, that, you know, typically there you've got a, a landing here and there that you may have a little bit rougher crowd that hangs out. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those, you know, and it's very common. Everybody's out. They're recreating, having a good time. And usually if they're on the hill hanging out, there's a lot of alcohol flowing. So I had this one individual pull up in the boat. It was very obvious that he was intoxicated. So I got him out, took him up to my vehicle to do the field sobriety on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the individuals, he was an older gentleman there, decided that he wanted to engage in our conversation I was having. And, of course, by this point in time, I had placed this individual under arrest, and he decided he was going to unarrest him. We got into a little bit of a physical altercation, and I was giving good commands to the individual that I was dealing with. Finally, kept telling him to get in my truck, 
you know, do it now. And finally mm-hmm. he complied, which helped me out so that I could finally, you know, just get away from the guy that I was trying to deal with. And you know how it is as a game warden. Backup is uh, 20 minutes at best, 30 at best. minutes. And, uh, then the, and then they got to find you. Exactly. Because they're wanting, mm-hmm. where are you now? Exactly where are you? You know, yeah. because it makes a difference. And mm-hmm. uh, was able to finally get away from him and get the individual taken in. And then after that, this guy was making threats that uh, – if you ever saw me again that he was going to take care of that problem so you know it's always interesting to see what you run across the mindset of folks and when you're talking about recreational time activity people look at that a lot different than than other things you guys in georgia are responsible for the boating laws as well yes you? yes that is we do the boating enforcement the hunting the fishing and then all of the uh public safety on all of the dnr controlled properties that's it's a wildlife management area public fishing area or the state parks there mm, that that's a huge responsibility it's for a lot sure. yes and how much time did you spend in a boat quite a bit yeah a lot a lot of time and you know during the summertime that's pretty much what you're working mm-hmm. you know their time's kind of spread out from the dnr type properties but also as far as the boating goes that's big in our state a lot of water mm-hmm. a lot of impoundments a lot of rivers a lot of you know those uh waterways that our folks stay on you know the one thing that comes to mind with the boating enforcement and stuff is uh the, the uniform change did you guys were you allowed to wear shorts and things like that yes we did have shorts that okay. were allowed as an option if the officer wanted to do that and we transitioned to more of a breathable type embroidery type shirt there toward the end mm-hmm. kind of you know be a little bit more comfortable you know how it is when you're in a vessel it is very hot sun mm-hmm. beaming down very. on you and actually pretty tough duty you know, most everybody that you check on the river or on, even on a lake say, man, that's a great job. You get to ride around <laughs> in a boat all day long. All but day what long. they don't realize is how hot it is and how that takes a toll on your body beating in a boat all day. Absolutely. And everything turns into a job. Even if it's the greatest job in the world, yes. it turns into a job. That's what I tell people because snowmobiles were the same way. That, that's an awesome job. And I think my back pays for it every day for yep. banging around on those snowmobiles for years. And, you know, just uh, the eight hours on a snowmobile is, you know compared to what everybody else does is it it, it really like you said just like a boat banging 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 and it it takes a toll on the body and i think i look at the injuries that conservation officers and game wardens have around the country and it's the job related whether you're picking up a litter doing search and rescue whether it's your back from banging on an atv or a boat it's it's all those job related things but yeah everybody thinks it's a great job when it's 100 degrees and they're out swimming uh and you get to be uh driving around a boat and sweating and looking for drunks and stuff so. that's right <laughs> and have those altercations that you know almost end up in, in a bad way and you know one guy on two and that you know by, by taking him and moving one into the cruiser that that was really smart because then you could focus on one exactly i had one mission that day just to get him to where he needed to go at the jail so you know you got to pick and choose when it comes to that right and pick and choose because you have one in custody you, you could probably put the other one in custody couldn't yes. you Yes. So, but that—that's another no problem. Way to do both. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. You know, arresting people on a boat, on an ATV, on a snowmobile—it's a difficult thing, and people don't understand. Yeah, you throw the cuffs on them. Now, what do you do? Right, especially in that boating environment, mm. you know, like you're talking about. Right, because you got to put a life vest on them if you do that. Yes. Yep. You got to worry about their safety. So they're intoxicated. So then you strap that on, put them in your boat, and drive them away. And then what do you do with their boat? Exactly. You got to have a, a lot of things put in place to be able to effectively do that. Right. I know some of our officers have had individuals that they've put under placed under arrest 
even with a life jacket on and handcuffed, jump in the water, you know, if they have that opportunity. So you never know someone who's intoxicated. They don't always always have the best judgment. So you never know what's going to happen. No, you are a- absolutely right. So, and we've had to have people operate in between two wardens to get them out of the woods. And that's always the defense attorneys. Well, you let them operate. Well, right. How else do you get them out? Right. You know, whether you, 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 you know, you cog tie them to the back of your ATV, you know, that doesn't work. Sure. So, and I'm sure as a Colonel, you sure wouldn't want to hear that, that no. somebody got hog tied and dragged out of the woods. So, and a lot of our jobs as a rural law enforcement, we interact with, you know, drug trafficking, exotic animals. And you had, you had such a case like that, didn't you though? I found really interesting. Yeah, that was uh, pretty early on in my career. You know, as we talked about earlier, before we got on uh, here, talked about relationships and the importance of that mm. you know and as a game warden you really have to have a lot of relationships in those communities that you serve and over time uh that pays off you get calls you get complaints you get information that you would not get otherwise so i received some information about this individual who had some exotics that were illegal for them to hold he had a cougar uh which is illegal to have he had a lesser pandas and he had a military monkey all of those are in the state of georgia at that particular point in time if you didn't have a permit for those they were illegal to possess so i was told where the property was and the typical game warden you know i had somebody drop me off i went in surveilled the area and outside the cartilage of the house you could see where he had pins the cougar was not out there but the lesser pandas which i didn't know what that was at the time i found out and i'm uh, gonna have to look it up now (laughs) (laughs) and then he had the monkey out there so i made contact with those knew they were there after I'd left out, the sheriff a few days later got in touch with me and then started inquiring about me entering on that property if I had been there. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, the DEA and the sheriff's department actually had this guy under surveillance because he had built an airstrip on his property and was actually flying in cocaine. Uh, he was under surveillance. So we wound up assisting with that, assisting with the takedown on that. And he actually had, I think it was around. 15 16 duffel bags of cocaine that he had buried on the property and they had someone inside that was providing them information Mm. on that but you know with that you never know what you're getting into uh typically a game warden especially in a rural area ends up being almost like another deputy for the sheriff's department Mm -hmm. as far as backup anything that goes along because you have to have good working relationships with each other as we talked about earlier a game warden being out in such rural areas a good distance from any kind of backup you want good relationships and you want locals absolutely absolutely you have to have it all working together (laughs) and so as you were doing the surveillance for the exotic animals they were surveilling you yes doing the surveillance yeah which was great so you didn't do a warrant on those and walk into something where a guy has cocaine because that could have been a mess absolutely yes so that 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 was a good thing that they were watching you watch them right and I, I think of some of the warrants we've done and, you know, uh, drugs and exotics seem to go they go together hand in hand, you know, whether it's snakes seem to come up a lot, huh? Sure. It's amazing. The interest that the drug dealers seem to have with that. And I don't, I don't know what the draw is, but you're correct. Yes. You see that a lot. Yeah. And I, I think of the search warrants we've done over the years that drugs have just been there that we were after the, the fishing game, but we always end up with the troopers in there taking other stuff. Right. Uh, right and you you know a lot of times you'll have sheriff's departments doing search warrants that'll give the game warden a call because they'll run across those exotics that are there 
absolutely or, or something that doesn't add up you know this guy's got a whole freezer he says it's full of deer and sure you know he doesn't have a hunting license or you know he's a felon right you know so there's there's all kinds of things as as we work together that and it and i think it's really important for those locals you know whether they hunt or fish to have a good handle on wildlife laws we had a border patrol up uh, we, we were doing some flyovers for some marijuana and i'll never forget this because one of the border patrols it's august our, our hunting seasons that starts um september 15th for deer here it is august and he, he sees a guy dragging out a deer out of the woods you know in august well he doesn't think anything of it you know he they land the chopper and there's, there's a warden there because he's going to go up next and he's like yeah some guy we, we saw him dragging a deer out of the woods over on simstream and he saw us in the helicopter he dragged it right back in so, and he's like, well, how long ago is that? It's like 30 minutes ago. Well, of course, they went there and there's nobody there. Sure. He didn't have a good handle on the fishing game laws because he didn't hunt and fish. Right. And so, that makes a difference. It, it, it's huge because they don't know the violation when they see it. Right. So to, to have those relationships and, you know, I mean, he didn't, he couldn't pick up a phone in the helicopter, but uh, it's, it's important if they, they see something that they think is wrong, they, they, they check into it and give us a call. Sure. But then there's those guys that really hunt and fish and that are deputies. And, and they know. Yep. It should have been game wardens. That's right. So I'm sure every now and then you try to steal a couple of those, don't you? Anybody that would be a good candidate like that, yes. You know, you want somebody that's got that vested interest in what you do for a living that has a hunting, fishing, or boating background. And that seems to be harder and harder to find nowadays. Mm. Do, you, do you have a lot of the new recruits that have a law enforcement background working for another agency just waiting for that time to jump into the DNR to be awarded? We... uh far as the hires the new hires mm-hmm. prior to my retirement they probably weren't probably 10 percent, maybe at the most out of our classes that were actually prior law enforcement wow we had some but uh overall it's uh if you look back it we didn't end up with a high percentage now do you think that's decreasing increasing i think it's been, it's been about the same you for think probably so? the last 10 years in our state anyway huh that's interesting i just some of the people I came on with started as police officers so they could just get that step up in when it was competitive, very competitive, right? you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, when you took a test and 600 people took it with you. Exactly. So it's certainly changed, hasn't it? It has changed dramatically because now it is really hard to fill the number of vacancies you've got. Uh, when you start looking at doing your, uh, you know, we started used to years ago, we would hold our process open for about a month whenever we were hiring folks the Mm -hmm. application process well i transitioned to holding that application process open all year wow so we were capturing every single person we even thought remotely might be interested you know and you would lose some because of the period of time before you would pull applications right but that is so dramatically different like what you're talking about whenever you come on whenever Uh i come on it was so competitive Right. There were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of folks applying for just a handful of jobs. And now you got a couple hundred folks applying for maybe 10 to 20 jobs. And, yeah. you know, it's typically you end up with like 10% of your applications that you actually might recommend for hire, which is mm. pretty slim. You know, once you start looking at their backgrounds and everything that's required to be a peace officer. And the process in Georgia, is it, do you do polygraphs, backgrounds? Yes, we uh, we do polygraphs on everyone. We do backgrounds on everyone. Everybody has to do the psychological prior to employment. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty in-depth process. It takes at least, if it's quick, four months to get through all of that. You know, interviews, you know, there's physical assessments that are done. 
a lot of things you have to look at because you're putting somebody out there with a badge and a gun and they're making decisions on their own mm-hmm. for the most part. So you got to try to ensure you got the best quality candidates that you can possibly have for those, those roles and keep your standards high with that. Right. And is Georgia, how many years before you could retire in Georgia? Well, with the, uh, it's 30, it's a 30 year retirement. It is okay. uh, 2% a year is the current. Well, the new one is not even that, but it is 30 years. Now it's 1% for wow. every year that you've been on. And then you've got the 401k that you have on top of that. Mm. And, and, and I'll tell you, Eddie, I think it's going to swing back the other way because the trend is going to be more and more difficult to get police officers game warden. You know, I, I'm going to predict we're going to start seeing the 20 years again because we can't attract those people back in. I would say you're correct. And if you look at if you look at the demands, physical and even more so the mental demands mm. to be a police officer nowadays, it, it really wears on someone. You know, 20 years is a long time yes. for that. Uh, 30 years is longer. 30 years is really long. Yeah. No, and then you're right, the physical aspect of it, the mental aspect of it. I think uh, to attract people to do these jobs, we're, hopefully the legislator will revisit that and understand that. And, and you know, frankly, I want a younger, sharper mind out there doing yes. that type yep. of work. And you uh, think about it, you know, nowadays just putting a uniform on and walking out in the public just is a stress level. A lot of officers may not realize that, but once you get that uniform off, you can tell a big difference. Right. And and nationwide, every enforcement agency is having the same issues. That's right. So we talked about retention before. Are there any other things that you implemented to try to retain? I mean, you, you up their pay, you let them live in the areas that they, you know, probably have roots in, have houses in. Is there any other methods that you, you tried to, to do? Well, I think one thing that probably helped a little bit with that process was our equipment for mm-hmm. uh, our game wardens. You know, I described what, a, what I was issued when I started. Of course, that was a long time Handcuffs, ago. Handcuffs, guns, uniform, have yep. a nice day, kid. I, that was about it. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and uh, nowadays. Don't forget uh, the blue light you had to tap to make work. That's right. Which I was proud. You know, I had a 1980 oh, Dodge power wagon. Yes. It had a four-speed transmission, manual shift, and it had one of those little teardrop blue lights on the dash. And you turn it on, you'd have to tap it on top to make it rotate. But nice. I was I was really proud of that truck. There is no doubt. Do you have a photo of that? uh i do not no uh, i do that's, not that's the you know the things nowadays everybody has the their cameras on their phones that's right so you capture a lot of that you capture a, so much more than what we did you sure. know I, I remember it used to be a challenge because you'd have to develop the film no one wanted to give you a camera because that's right film and charge and the, you to develop it the cost associated with the film to getting it developed uh, yeah. exactly because budgets of course budgets are always tight but back during that period of time they were really tight yeah and I, so i think our evidence for collecting evidence in these things has increased so much because take hundreds of digital photos exactly. and pick out the ones you want doesn't cost you anything does it yeah yeah so uh so we were going back to the equipment um so well, it's transition now you know i never thought i would have anybody tell me this but during my tenure as colonel i had more than one game warden told me said colonel please don't buy us any more equipment to go in our vehicle i do not have room for it you know and uh, typically a game warden's always looking for that next piece of equipment you're not gonna make their job a little bit easier but yeah. we were fortunate enough over a period of time to be able to put into place you know we bought everybody a, a backup handgun we had some some old used excess properties, uh, M16s. We were able to upgrade all of those to mm. the Daniel Defense rifles, which are made in Georgia, but they are a really, really, really nice firearm. Mm. 
And then uh, most every officer, we got to the point where we had them night vision. We had some thermal imaging out for our search and rescue efforts that our folks were doing. Boats equipped very nice, just, uh, you know, trucks were very nice. So over a period, you know, it takes time to get that kind of stuff in place. Absolutely. But it helps them do their job and helps them do their job a lot more efficient uh, Mm. with, with that. Yeah, especially like the night vision because a lot of our operations are at night. Yes, and if you look at what the public's got now as far as night Uh, vision, thermal imaging, on you know scopes on rifles and all that, our officers from a safety standpoint also need that to be able to monitor something. You know, the days of shining have changed, as mm -hmm. we called it, shining for deer, right? to where they don't even have to put a light out when they've got that thermal imaging and a scope. You know, they can just – glass a field with that and see if there's any deer out there or see if the game warden's there that's in the field. exactly right yes yep. whether yep. it's a body or whether it's a truck sitting there with a warm engine sure you know i, I think our tactics need to change in the future because yeah uh, the equipment that they can access with the thermal integers are so inexpensive now that that's what they're doing exactly yep you know i just did a podcast with a conservation officer eric fluette and the kid had an old time uh you know vcr type thing that had like a night vision on thing and that's how he thinks he got detected because they used that as night vision and that that was pretty old technology compared to what we have nowadays out there sure so but he got detected and uh, the alarm went off so he had to spring into action you know now i'm like you know these guys can drive by a field and and see if the game warden's sitting there see if there's deer out and it's 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 kind of a it's almost a different way and i haven't really put my head around how how are we going to work that right well it's you got to do counter surveillance all the time that's what it is and right anytime you hear or see something you know use that night vision that thermal imaging to kind of check and see exactly what did you hear was that a vehicle or or whatever it may be and and you know, I, I think it's every podcast I talk about Operation Game Tea for International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. It makes that aspect of it so much more important is to get that information to build on those cases so we can, hey, this guy's using thermal imaging at night. A, a dime gets dropped on him. Now you have a suspect that you can look for, you can follow patterns similar to that night hunting case you told me about that you did and you had to pattern him. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you want to get, tell us about that, cause that, that was a, that was a pretty interesting case. Well, and you know, this was again, uh, the first County I was assigned was working it. And typically whenever we had a really good night hunting complaint, you know, we would ha- try to have at least two vehicles working the area. We'd kind of concentrate the areas to try to pattern, pattern them, figure out where they're going. And, you know, and you'll, Game wardens use a lot of techniques on dirt roads to try to pattern folks and see, figure out what times they're coming through so it narrows it down. Mm-hmm. You know, and early on, we didn't have the camera systems and stuff that you right. that you can put out now, so you had to do it other ways. But we had one that we were working, had some complaints on where they were killing a few deer in a really remote area on some dirt roads. So we had patterned them down, figured it was like a 3 a.m. in the morning type night hunter. And um, we worked it and guy comes through he's shining we stop him and it's a older model ford bronco and on the back of it it's got too easy written on it so we, we you know we kind of made a joke of that about that we patterned him down in a few nights caught him he was too easy because sometimes it takes a month to catch some of them you know they're so sporadic exactly and i'm sure that followed you through your career with those guys and yep. you just kind of said hey it's too easy too easy that's yeah, right that, that, that that's a great thing so of course you know with that stuff you a game warden has to really invest a lot of time to be able to catch somebody like that that's that's doing that yeah sometimes years i can think of a case we had it was literally years and it was just the timing like you said it was off 
because I don't think he was consistent. Right. You know, we'd think we had him pattern. Okay, we're going to work early. We're going to work late. Okay, we're going to work all through the night. We're going to work holidays. And, and for years before we finally caught him. Sure, and that and that's that's probably more the norm, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and some of it's just luck. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just dang luck being there at the same time at the same place. But right. Having that gotcha moment is, is priceless. Makes it worthwhile, doesn't it? Right. I mean, it's like uh, like I used to say, you can't catch them at the house, so you got to be out there working. No, no doubt. Although nowadays they can probably watch all their cameras from their house. That's true. <laughs> Very true. That's what we're going to come down to is a surveillance system, so they can pinpoint it and <laughs> working smarter, working smarter, not harder. So I, I know a few guys are going to listen to this and they're going to be like, "Oh, that's a great idea," you know? Right. <laughs> we'll have a whole surveillance thing set up with TVs and have it all all gridded off and everything, and you know, pinch points and uh, yep, yeah, you know, just just because that's the way they think, and you know, I, I, I the new generation. I see coming in and sometimes I criticize the new generation, but I always think that, you know, the generation before me criticized me coming exactly. in. Exactly. So it's Well, and one thing about the newer generation, the technology is something of real interest to them. I know mm-hmm. we started using a lot of the cameras that you could put out. Yes. that will send you a text with a photo of what it's looking at. Mm. And our, you know, that's working a lot smarter than, you know, right. back in the day when I come along, but they've made a lot of arrests for if, fishing without permission you know supporting landowner complaints hunting without permission when they've got someone that they Mm. know where they're going in and coming out to be able to have that camera put up and send them a picture of somebody heading into the property and then the catching evidence can go catch them that's right so now you have evidence to go along with it so even if you don't get there you might be able to follow up on it exactly right yes so it's it's definitely you know technology has been good um i think and i think it's going to be important because of the technology the poachers are using exactly and you think about the court systems nowadays nowadays the expectation if you have a jury trial or anything else they expect you to have that kind of evidence nowadays because of what the tv has portrayed that everybody's going to have a video or something of the incident uh whether it be from a body camera or a car camera or otherwise right so you know those things become sometimes maybe an unreal expectation but you know as you got to progress and be professional as an agency those things come into play right and and the only good thing about it is it takes the eyewitness thing away from it because i hate eyewitnesses because they're always wrong right sometimes we think we see something and we didn't really see it or you know i think of search and rescue missions where people swear up and down they saw this person that we're looking for and it sends us on the wrong way right sends away from our search area takes you away from your mission yes sometimes and Georgia, you know, you were telling me you started tracking search and rescue, and uh, it was amazing to you how much that your officers are actually doing for search and rescue in Georgia. Right. Several years ago, our state emergency management agency asked us to assist being the lead for emergency support function number nine, which is search and rescue in the state. But they wanted us to do the water and woods aspect of it. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, that's what that's, what a game warden does. That's, that's what they're trained for. That's what they do every day. You know, yes. that's, that's their forte. Yes. And we had had a few pretty good high-profile cases where our folks really helped out. Ever since I went to work in 1982, we always help with search and rescue if it's water or woods related that's just part of it you Mm -hmm. know we support agency but we help with that right so when we were asked to take the lead with that and help organize a lot of that we started keeping stats on how many we were doing and for under 200 officers they were doing over 300 annually and you think about that that's uh on top of their everyday duties that's right 
very significant. Yeah. A lot of involvement when it comes to that arena. Right. And probably something that you weren't getting paid to do, were you? No, that's just was, was just part of the job. Part of know? the job. Yes. So, But when it came to search and rescue money, when it got doled out before that, they probably weren't even thinking of the game wardens. And now well, they're like, wow. Yes. They're doing a lot. We've, that has helped us a lot with a lot of the equipment I've talked about, you know, mm-hmm. because any kind of that type of equipment for search and rescue, a game warden can use every day in the field when they're working. Mm-hmm. So our search and rescue equipment that we got through grant money, it was for items such as the thermal imaging, the, the night vision, any of those kind of things that a field officer can use every day. So it helped us with our core mission. And, you know, and that's what we always tried to keep our folks focused on, that conservation law enforcement. Mm. That's what we get paid to do. At the end of the day, you've got to always make sure you're grounded there and that you're providing the sportsmen in your state and the women in your state what they're paying you to do. Right. And you never forget that as going up through the ranks to his colonel, to make those your objectives sure well and that was something i preached probably every meeting i had the opportunity to go to i'd always use those words focus on conservation law enforcement and that's mm-hmm. you know that's our core mission mm-hmm. yeah because I, I i see i see all of us getting pulled in so many directions now because we're the police in the woods that's exactly right you know when it comes to a search they call us when it comes to a crime they call us and you know sometimes we forget what our focus is sure yeah well and you get pulled to those things and you got to remember at the end of the day what your true mission is you know we always have to support those other agencies you know Mm -hmm. our folks would come in be called to look for murder weapons in the woods in the water help look for somebody missing they think has been uh maybe a murder victim you name it our folks always are called to assist with that because number one their reputation of being able to be woods wise to be able to go in there and do that but it also that's a two-way street you know when you're assisting another agency They'll remember you when they run across something that might be in that conservation law enforcement field. You know, we've had deputies that call our game wardens if they've caught a night hunter when they're out working or yeah. provide them information with things that they might not have otherwise that right. was built off of a relationship, a working relationship. Nice. Does Georgia have any specialty teams as far as your officers? Well, we've got uh, several in-house type specialty teams. Yeah. Of course, we've got a canine program which was started in 1999 we started it off and actually that particular point in time i was asked to head that up i was a captain out of our gainesville office then uh-huh. and i was tasked with putting together a canine program for the state of georgia so we actually modeled our current program after what north carolina had at the time okay we sent a couple officers up they went through the training north carolina was doing they were putting a basic class on for their mm-hmm. officers we sent a couple officers through and then i sent one of those officers to be a canine handler instructor and we started our own program there which has really been successful we've got seven region offices and we've got eight canine nice. officers right now deployed throughout the state and that canine can really save a lot of time you're looking at a night hunting case for example where they've thrown a gun out or right. you may have a deer in a field or something they can really uh, reduce that officer's time looking for something significantly we also have what we call a critical incident reconstruction team and those teams go in after a hunting accident or a boating accident and put that back together mm. you know those type of scenes are not exactly like a car accident where you got skid marks and everything else right so they've got specialized training to go into the woods to be able to recreate any kind of a hunting incident that occurred or on the waterways a boating incident that may have occurred so we've got some teams that do that and then of course we've got an investigative unit 
that uh, works more on the overt and covert type investigations to help support that game warden in the field. And that's, is that I'll, a plain clothes unit? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of what it's still being built upon now. You know how hard it is to get positions, but yes, mm-hmm. it is a plain clothes unit. And we also have in each one of those seven region offices I mentioned, we've got a uniformed officer that has specialized training to be able to assist that investigative unit. So if they need to do an undercover detail in another region where that officer is not known, mm-hmm. you know, a good ways away from their house, they're trained to be able to do that. Yep. And any kind of investigative type function, whether it's interrogation, whatever it may be. And as you know, now the internet has become the way mm-hmm. that a lot of the trade is taking place. Right. So we hired an analyst uh, with a couple of years ago to go to work for that unit who does a lot of the social media stuff, her specialty is looking at that, monitoring that. Any field officer that might need information associated with that can call, ask, wow. tell them what they need. And that that has really – it's amazing how much information you can pull off social media. Poachers want to brag on what they do, don't they? Right. Yep. We can't catch the ones that don't brag. That's right. Yep. Those are the tough if, guys that do it out the backyard and never tell anybody. If they're real smart, they'll just keep it to themselves. And those are the ones you need the information on that we talked about earlier, that you get information by having relationships with folks. Exactly. You know, when I was in the field, I would always, if I was riding along, working somewhere, if I'd see a farmer in the field or somebody else where they were not real busy, maybe stop working on a tractor, I'd pull in, I'd introduce myself, I'd give them a business card. They may Mm -hmm. not hunt, they might not fish, but you start building those relationships. And then over the years that developed where you'd get those kind of folks giving you a call because of that first interaction you had with them if it was positive and they might say well you know i got this issue going on around here and they might not have called otherwise other than you stopped you engaged them in conversation you didn't want anything you just stop and let them know who you are if you ever need anything over that way please give me a call those helped a lot over the years to get information from folks just basic relationships. And some of those people, if you didn't stop and see them, they'd never pick up a phone. They never would have. But you stop and see them, and that, that just changes the game. Sure. And, and as a young warden, and I'll probably say this a dozen times through this podcast, my lieutenant, when I first got assigned, he's like, hey, did you go over here and have a cup of coffee? Did you stop and see that farm? And, and I kept thinking to myself, you know, I, I, I'm busy. I'm a game warden here. Right. I'm, I'm catching bad guys. I don't have time to go have coffee with the farmer. I don't have time to stop there. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm out to catch bad guys. You know, I, I don't understand why the lieutenant didn't understand that. But after I caught on and he wanted me to build those relationships sure. to get get that information that paid off to some of my best cases let people know who you are feel comfortable with you and uh as long as they know who that local game warden is a lot of times they will call it's it's the basics of operation game thief basically it is it's building your own network it is yep and like those uh like operation game thief like you're talking about with those programs you know that is put into place to help that field officer be more effective Mm. you know there's so many violations that go undetected Right. And those programs help with that process. You know, if they don't know who that local game warden is, at least it gives them a way to get that information to someone so that they can apprehend someone who's violating the law. So those programs are so important from that standpoint. Right. That that, that analysis uh, position just fascinates me, Eddie, because, you know, I just don't know how many agencies have something like that for resources. And yet, I think you're absolutely right. That's where our crime is building. It is. And the, I'm, I'm sure that person generates a ton of information that goes to the field. Exactly. And, you know, we were looking at the trends around uh, 
you know, we you, as an agency, we would try to stay in contact with other states. I never had an original idea. I just stole someone else's all the time, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But anyway, some of the states that had analysts uh, working for them, you could see where they were producing some really good information. Right. And I felt strong enough about it that I've put that position in place, and it's really hard to pull a trigger take someone out of the field or position and right. move it to something like that. But it has really, really paid off in the state of Georgia just from that information and having someone that that's their expertise, give them the training they need to know what to go into, look for, uh, associated with that. Any field officer, you know, they may not be the most technical savvy when it comes to that, but they can call this analyst and say, I need information on this person. And in a very short period of time, that analyst can go in and really pull all the contacts that are associated with one individual. Social media has really put uh, some of those jobs a little bit easier for folks to be able to track them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no doubt. And you're right that that gives that comfort to the officer in the field because let's face it, some guys aren't technological, or nor do they want to be. Sure. But if they can pick up a phone and talk to somebody that can, because that's they, right, they want to catch the bad guy. Yep, and that allows them to stay focused in the field with what they need to be doing and somebody else doing something a lot quicker than they could. Right, instead of wasting their time trying to do this. That's right, you trying call to these figure up it out. And, you know, whether it's an hour or two hours and you get everything from what that guy ate for breakfast to, you know, what kind of registrations they got on his vehicles to, you know, that type of thing. Or they're generating their own thing by monitoring social media. Sure. I would imagine that, hey, that, you know, this guy's got an armadillo for sale, you know, and they, they call him up because that's what it was posted on Facebook or that's Craigslist right. or something like that. So, And it's amazing that trade that's out there on the Internet, you know, especially with what you might consider to be the non-game species. Mm. Uh, that has uh, increased so dramatically with that process that, you know, you need someone who's constantly monitoring that, looking at it to see what's out there. No, no doubt no doubt and that that's that's like it's you're right it's hard to pull the trigger to move that position into that i, I gotta believe it because especially if it takes a field position away yes. yep i mean for a colonel to do that 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 kills because that puts more of a burden on the field when you take a position out of the field right and the way i looked at that was that was going to help the field by having mm-hmm. that position in place to make their job a little bit easier and that was one of the things i always tried to preach to my command staff our captains and everyone else at a higher level is their job was to work for that field officer every day, whatever they could do to make their job easier. Because, you know, the demands on the field officer is a lot. Uh, every state probably is stretched so thin with the demands on a field game board mm-hmm. until you you got to look at what you can do to make their job easier, whether it's equipment, whether it's doing something a little bit different with your operations. Right. Or how you report, and uh, exactly that's one thing I see about game wardens. They, you know, the re- report writing. They don't like to do that. Um, every time you move around, you know, whether it's issuing a ticket, now it's this process, that process, and everything to make things simpler for them and make it more effective. If, if they can see that, yes, boy, that that that's something huge, right? And so. you have to review those things on a you know fairly regular basis to ensure that you're not overburdening someone with those administrative requirements like you're talking about, right? Did you ever get, you know, some a hint from somebody in the field that you took and you implemented? Well, you know, when I first got promoted, one of the things I did was I put a survey out to everybody. I wanted to know the three things we were doing right, three things we were doing wrong. So you always got to, you know, have some positive with anything you do. You don't want to always focus on negative. Right. So I took those surveys and they were just free-handed. Uh-huh. You know, some of the officers would send me a 15-page diatribe, <laughs> which was fine. 
you know, I read all of those. Yeah. But I really utilized that to, uh, I thought I had a good handle on what I needed to do once I got promoted, but I utilized that survey uh-huh. to help solidify what I thought we needed to do, but also some things associated with that that uh, would help me move forward as we work through the top three, then we could start working down through the other issues that needed to be done. And some of those were some of those administrative requirements that we mm-hmm. had. Uh, did you find that survey pretty consistent among the field guys? It was. Overall, it was. You know, wow. you're always going to get uh, some yeah. specific things that affect one individual personally, uh, which is part of the process. You know, you'd always have to look at the bigger picture, determine what truly needed to be done, set your priorities. And the, the pay parity that we talked about earlier was the number one priority. And I felt mm. like that was going to be the case because yeah. that was a huge issue in our state. That also helped me with my justification to work forward with some of that too right what a boost in the field to give the colonel the ball and have him run with it sure you know and of course and with that i couldn't do anything alone it took every officer in the field you know as we talked about earlier you know with a game warden you can give them a sense of direction you give them a mission you tell them what you want them to do and they will make it happen one way or another it's amazing the quality of officer that I think we have nationwide to be able to do that. I totally agree. Cer- certainly reflective of so many officers. Sure. You know? So, but you know, I always try not to give them parameters, and I, I could tell you avoided that. You don't tell them how to do it. You just give them that goal and give them the ball and say go. Because that, right. And but, you you kind of give them some suggestions, some direction to go, and then give them the autonomy to move forward with it and it makes a difference no absolutely and it's amazing the new ideas that come out absolutely of the baby game wardens yes i, I love that term when you said that it's just will always crack me up now the baby game wardens and <laughs> you're, you're you're right but uh you know i always like to watch that newness and try to take advantage of it because they have new ideas. exactly so because they can they can move mountains because they got that will at that time you know? right that's right yeah they They're, give the shovel and start going exactly so you've been involved in a, in a ton of things, though, as colonel, you know, nationally as well. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what you've been involved with and then the challenges you see ahead for wildlife law enforcement. Well, you know, I was fortunate enough the last couple of years as colonel, I was voted president of the National Association of Conservation Law Enforcement Chiefs. I was vice president prior to that. I really appreciated the opportunity to be involved with that group. So, you know, that's the chiefs, the colonels nationwide that Mm. are a part of that. So you've got a mix of issues nationwide that you get to know about, be aware of, and see how other states deal with issues and problems that come along. And that helped tremendously. And, you know, it's amazing that for the most part, every state deals with very similar issues Mm. from one state to another. But that allowed the chiefs to get together, have conversations, and it even got to the point where, uh, you know, there was an intelligence summit that sort of evolved out of that. Not my doings, but part of that association so that annually the investigators are having meetings once a year from every state that will participate. And mm-hmm. they can talk about those issues that they're having when it comes to wildlife trafficking and issues internally within the U.S. and those that are going out. So that that was one thing that has come out of it. Another thing that come out of that association was that association, some of our conversation as chiefs and colonels was that, you know, leadership training is very important with any organization that you have, doesn't matter what it is. You know, and there's a lot of law enforcement training out there for leadership training. 
And we talked about, well, you know, it would be really good if we had conservation law enforcement leadership training. Mm -hmm. So we put together a uh, leadership academy, and that Mm -hmm. was for those future rising stars and those agencies to attend to be able to get exposure from those that have basically been there, done that, maybe help them eliminate some of those pitfalls that, you know, you go through when you're growing your leadership skill sets, your abilities, and dealing with both, you know, right. the internal and external politics that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one thing I was really proud that we were able to get that in place. And there's been a lot of folks that have been through that academy. It's basically a three-week uh, academy. And pretty intense from what I hear. It is. It's, it's uh, very intense for mm-hmm. the ones that attend. You know, the, mm-hmm. you've got to want to be there because you've got a lot of work that you're going to do. Right. But the feedback we've got overall is that everyone benefits from going and helps to grow them for their future things that they may not be aware of that you got to deal once you get into those leadership positions. Right. So that helps to grow those agencies. It helps to build future leaders of those agencies for them to be able to have a better set of skill sets when they go into those places. You know, I think about my coming up through the career, and yours was probably the same. You know, when I made sergeant, for example, well, here's your stripes, good luck. Mm-hmm. You know, you had no real training that was associated to prepare you for that. So you did it trial by fire. You figured right. it out on your own. Mm-hmm. And that was some steps that we put into place in our state through some of the local leadership training that was there for officers. You know, we're, we started sending them through what was the local command college through one of the colleges there and to the point when i was left we were sending corporals to that so that when a corporal got promoted to sergeant nice. they already had that exposure mm-hmm. for that type of training and that really moved the needle i think building the quality of our supervisors for that agency absolutely i can see where that has but then to add the conservation to it yes that just adds a whole nother dynamic a whole number depth to what we do specifically sure and the things that you know that are specific to that profession and that Mm. i think that's helped a lot yeah because the relationships we have with the biologists that we have to work with the legislators we work with on on the the issues that we all have maybe different you know species or whatever but the same goals in mind we still have to you know it's definitely different than your typical law enforcement it is yes it is what do you see the challenges ahead for conservation law enforcement nationwide well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of different things, but probably the main ones are going to be staying, number one, focused on that conservation law enforcement because we've already kind of hinted all around. Right. A game warden gets pulled in many different directions. Mm-hmm. If you look at uh, more of the outdoor trends now, it may not be quite as much hunting and fishing as it is for just outdoor enjoyment of the recreation that's out there for the public, whether right. it's the kayaking, the non-motorized vessels, the, the hiking, hiking, the all of that's kind of where wildlife things, watching yes exactly mm-hmm. right that, that's where you're seeing a lot of the interest trending to mm-hmm. and that interest is going up significantly mm-hmm. so what comes out of that you get search and rescue calls you know those compound a lot especially with the non-motorized vessels those mm-hmm. hikers that may be injured you know i know even in our state you know we got part of the appalachian trail that goes through there right and a lot of those uh locations that are really remote to get to in the mountains and you know we've got our aviation unit there in the state of georgia we had fortunate enough we had three rotary assets wow and uh they would do long line rescues you know go in remote areas you get the first responders in there to the individual if they could not tote them out walk them out then a lot of times you'd put them in a litter and they'd fly them out nice well we moved to a different model because some of the times 
with those particular incidents, it might take a first responder a couple of hours to walk in there after that aviation asset had located someone who was injured. Mm-hmm. So we started having our game wardens repel out of the helicopter. Wow. To that individual, get them in the litter, get them ready to go, and then pull them out with a long line. So that helped a lot with the timeline. Mm-hmm. Now, you think about that. Is that a game warden's mission? No. Well, it evolved to that. Now, it's not our right. core mission, but because of the skill set an officer has mm-hmm. with that woods, uh, woods and water mindset that they have to have, those training that we provide for that. Right. And then if you've got that aviation asset that's geared for that, then, then um, it evolves to that. So those are the kind of challenges you're going to look at as the interest of the public changes. Right. Uh, our priorities may change. That's true. Uh, we've always got to stay true to those folks that pay the basic salary with those hunting and fishing license revenues. You've got mm-hmm. to do that. We've got to make sure they're covered. Because That's, if our focus changes, funding has to change too. Exactly. Because right now, those hunters and fishermen are paying the bill. That's exactly right. You know, fortunately in our state, we had a blend. Uh, we had state revenues that helped support a lot of ours in addition mm-hmm. to those license revenues. So we weren't solely tied to that. So that's one reason our mission could be a little bit broader probably. Right. It was not tied strictly to that. We mm-hmm. do get a lot of license revenues. And at the end of the day, we have to stay – That's in Georgia, have to stay focused on that. But uh, I think you're going to see – the recreational user and their interest as that changes and they're out in the environment our officers work we'll right. see changes associated with that yep nope i would agree hey it's been a great opportunity great interview great conversation oh, thank you uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it and you know i always leave you know is there anything else you want to throw in there eddie because uh you know it's your your show as much as my show and it's, it's you know to get that information out there to talk about your experiences to share that with the general public it's just i i think it's an awesome thing well as you know it's uh a game warden's career is just a great career i've been blessed uh, my 36 years really went by quick mm. there were times when it didn't seem like it <laughs> but no it went by really quick i think some of the things too that from a John Q. Public standpoint, just support for those officers out there doing their job. Sometimes it's a very thankless job. Mm-hmm. And then we got to look at how do you develop those future game wardens and people that have that interest in that because it's, it's true with a lot of jobs, especially with the law enforcement field, but the interest in folks wanting to do that career, somehow we've got to continue to build on that to, to invest in the future of this profession because it is a really, really important one. A game warden, as a general rule, helps to set the very basic quality of life for folks in their states. If you think about, you know, the environmental issues that you deal with to just the very basic hunting, fishing, boating, you know, a lot of companies, when they're looking at your state to come to it, that's some of the things they look at. They look at what are the recreational opportunities if we bring people into the state that's available to them. You know, they look at a lot of those things when they're making those decisions, whether or not they're going to move a business or or even grow a business there. And a game warden sets those quality standards just by the job they do. Mm, no, no, thank you. Uh, former Colonel Eddie Henderson, 36 years. Thank you so much for your service, you know, nationwide to the state of Georgia. And certainly it's been a pleasure having this interview. Thank today. you, Wayne. Take care. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife 
saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.